You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Cryptography of anonymity is a, is a weapon that we're going to use to overthrow the state. All of the value that's created in society is created by people, it's created by their creativity. The state as its construct is a system that extracts value out of human society. The system will only allow crypto to exist as long as crypto poses no threat. A new technology whose time has come, it can't be stopped. We're in like a race to this endpoint. And they're trying to like slow us down. They're trying to like buy time to like formulate a strategy. The increased regulatory crackdown on crypto is changing the face of the industry. Compliance has become a number one priority and there's less appetite for financial innovation when people are just unsure of how governments are going to regulate that innovation. So it's pushing a whole bunch of players offshore, but it's also pushing a bunch of players underground. So there's this parallel world of crypto in the world of DeFi that's emerging and it's becoming stronger than ever because it's uncontrollable, it's unregulatable, it's very, very difficult to enforce any kind of ban that might be imposed on this DeFi world. Amiyataki calls these two worlds RegFi and DarkFi, and he recently put out a manifesto diving into this split. He's a British-Iranian anarchist revolutionary, a hacktivist and programmer, an OG in the industry who has inspired countless people, and he was even listed in Forbes's 30 under 30 of 2014. We're going to dive into Amir's manifesto on the coming crypto storm. Welcome to the show, Amir. Thanks a lot. Uh, big fan of the show. Thanks for having me. So talk to me about how you got involved with all of this and uh, where it all began. I was a teenager and I started programming on free software. I thought Linux was very important because I was like into economics and the open source thing was pretty cool. People all over the internet are using the internet as this new economy to create uh, software and they're fighting this uh, corporate proprietary industry. So um, I got uh, really involved in open source. There wasn't any money in it really. Um, you know, I was broke for a long time. I also was a poker player for two years, professional poker player. I wanted to build a decentralized poker site. I was like researching a lot what mechanism I could use for the money side. And that was when I found Bitcoin in late 2010. And then I was like, this is incredible. And uh, I started like uh, building lots of software for Bitcoin, got really involved in it. I made the first Bitcoin exchange in the UK, which was second biggest by volume in the market. I was also heavily involved in Bitcoin core development, like Bitcoin software development. Did a lot of work on Electrum, the wallet. Also with a lot of focus on uh, anonymity techniques, privacy techniques. When Russell Bricht went to prison and the Silk Road got shut down, I was thinking for a long time, how can we make something like Silk Road, but it can't get shut down? That was the software that I released, Dark Market. It was just made in a hackathon as a proof of concept, but that became Open Bazaar. And then I was away for two years or three years. I was one year under house arrest from crypto because I was in Syria and I was working on economics projects. I was working for the economics committee. Then when I was back, 
I started continuing my research about anonymity techniques and realized that CoinJoin was broken. So the last few years have spent since 2017 doing a lot of research, got very deeply into zero knowledge cryptography. And we're trying to conceptualize how to build like a new uh, crypto paradigm to build uh, completely anonymous applications, to build the infrastructure that we need, not just like uh, anonymous like money, but how do we build everything else around that? Exchanges, uh, marketplaces, all that kind of stuff. So that's like a work that's ongoing now and we're exploring concepts and we're developing the software. So that's a dark five project, which we announced in Lisbon. So that's where we are today. You also launched the dark wallet as well, a collaboration with Cody Wilson. Yeah. Um, and then with the Airbits team, you mentioned the precursor to what then became open bazaar, uh, dark market, really awesome projects, really focused on decentralization, privacy. And these are all a core part of your principles. At what point in your life did that sort of switch on for you and you decided that you were just a person of action, really fighting for freedom and privacy and all of these important goals? Well, when, I was, when I was a teenager, I was really into this video game called Red Alert and it had uh, Stalin in there and I thought it was really cool. So but then I got like, really into communism uh, and then I uh, started hanging around with anarchists and you know, boys, we used to have these uh, conversations in high school and I'd be that kid that would be like ranting about politics, like it'd be really easy to trigger me. So I, I was just really into it um, from a very young age. I kind of, a few months ago or a while ago, I found a document I wrote when I was like 13 or something, like on, on freedom, like philosophy of freedom. I was shocked. I was like, well, it was actually coherent. I, I thought it would just be like nonsense. I was also really into computers, so we were uh, hacking the school computers a lot. And, uh, <laughs> what were you doing yeah. on the school computers? <laughs> oh, loads, loads of stuff. They, uh, they actually got expelled over it. Um, they said they said I'd caused like tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage. But it was yeah, but it was like many years like ongoing. It was just like a game, like we. Because they'd like patch the computers and we'd try and find new ways to get in because the school was very boring. So, you know, we were just troublemakers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've always been into uh, uh, politics. I think I grew up in a part of England where there was nothing really going on. And it was that time in the 90s, the Soviet Union was defeated. And then the West was kind of in this like victory mode where it, it was like, we've won, that's it. And everybody at that time, if you look at the movies, we were watching like Independence Day or Godzilla or Day Out. It was always some kind of apocalypse. We were like kind of willing that into existence. In the 90s, like everything was too perfect. That's why a lot of people got attracted into like these new kind of ideologies or these new ideas spawned like a lot of idealists. And the free software movement happened. Uh, 2000s as well was the uh, BitTorrent, if everybody remembers BitTorrent, that was a fight against Hollywood. Hollywood started suing people and sending people to prison. They did that to threaten people, to make people scared, but actually it had the opposite effect because people was like, oh, you're not going to bully me 
into submission, we're going to defeat you, Hollywood. And it kind of radicalized like a lot of people. And the whole kind of peer-to-peer -peer thing became really big. Like you had the pirate party. Uh, you had like revolutions that happened in countries like Egypt and, you know, Arab Spring and Ukraine, Georgia. And they're all about these uh, new swarm ideologies. So that's obviously played like a really big part in, um, in, in Bitcoin and then crypto now, you know. Why is something like Bitcoin important? What do you think it changes in society that needed to be changed? Before, when we were open source programmers, we were creating like a lot of very valuable kind of software, things that were like very valuable, but we didn't have a way to capture back some of that value. In fact, like when I first came to Bitcoin, I was looking, I was like, oh, how can, what can I use as a kind of uh, payment system? And I was looking at all these things like PayPal, and like, not, nothing really was adequate, but now, but then when I found Bitcoin, I was like, I was like, oh my God, it's uh, cryptographic money. It's completely virtual. So it means that we're like, it's uncensored. It's got no restrictions. It's not owned by a company. It means I can, I can actually uh, create software and I can have a way to, you know, get money to come in to the activity that we're doing and we can use that to kind of grow. So for that, that for me, as somebody who was for a long time I was trying to write open source software was was game changer because I was like, oh, like we have a way to get like money to come in so that we're not just like, because it was really bad like working on open source software because, you know, many times, you know, uh, you'd be like, hey, there's been no money and it's like not everybody can do that. So we were always very like resource constrained, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, we just kind of give up and they're like, whatever, I'm going to go get a job. You know, they'd sell out. Um, but like now it doesn't have to be that way. Like we have a different way to do things. That's why I'm very bullish on crypto and its potential. And this movement of developers who are building all of this free and open source software is really important in a time when increasingly our lives are all on the internet. There's surveillance of every part of our digital lives. And then you have this small core group of uh, radicalized individuals who are saying, no, let's push back against this. Let's find, let's carve out some area of freedom in our digital lives. Talk to me about this cat and mouse game of kind of the government surveillance and then this core group of people who are kind of fighting against that and fighting for freedom on the internet. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I need privacy because, you know, I don't want people looking at me when I go to the toilet or whatever. Like for me, um, the the cryptography of anonymity is a, is a weapon that we can use to overthrow the state. Russell Brick, his favorite novel was a book called Alongside Night, which is about a group of revolutionary agorists who through free trade and markets, they like overthrow the US state. And we have this concept inside of dark fire that we call the dark forest. For example, you were talking about Rajava and, and the Kurds. You know, the way that Turkey is, is trying to defeat these like rebellious mountain people who they just want their autonomy, but there's this like giant state that's trying to bully them into submission. Is they like they try to destroy all the natural habitat. They try to like uh, cut to cut off all the rivers. You know, so that like the gorillas like have nowhere to hide, and it's the same. And also, the same thing happened in Ireland, where it used to be forested with trees, 
And when the British wanted to colonize it, they like literally just cut down all the trees and the forests. So there was nowhere to hide. And they like basically turned it into a desert. And it's like this kind of desert, which is like like authoritarianism, uh, like where it performs best. That's why it tries to turn everything into a desert. And it tries to like eliminate all the kind of nooks and crannies where kind of dissent can kind of like fester. But it's like our job really is uh, to create these uh, parallel societies because where the parallel societies exist is where people can kind of like um, create you know these new new societies where the DNA of, of how they exist is like resistant to totalitarianism from the beginning and it becomes like the seed of like the, the new society we're trying to create that's like the goal of like every revolutionary movement and the agorists, what they believed is that we could use economics as a tool. Like it doesn't purely just have to be like a political struggle, but also an economic one. And that's kind of what Ross Ulbricht, who made the Silk Road, what he was kind of fighting for. That was like his belief. If you went onto the, the Silk Road, there would be the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he would have like these reading groups where they would be like discussing libertarian philosophy. And, um, you know, he'd put out these, um, like, little manifestos, which would be going, which would be, like, uh, um, going, you know, the, the Silk Road and represent the, the new form of the market. Uh, so that was, that was really kind of like an ideological mission for those people. So we're kind of um, part of that lineage of agorists who, you know, like now we have like much stronger anonymity tech, we have zero knowledge, we have peer-to-peer, we can like utilize this to build like a new kind of paradigm of technology. So that's kind of our objective. You definitely don't dance around words. I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, they will kind of couch terms and they'll say, oh, I'm in this for ideas of freedom and yeah, you know, helping people. And you'll just come around and sit out and say, and you're like, we want to overthrow the state. So let's dig into that. And then I want to dig into this manifesto you put together, which again, didn't mince words at all. It was very direct and very powerful statement about the future of society. But talk to me about why agorists believe that the state is problematic creates destruction you know talk me through some of those ideas because a lot of the viewers this is going to be new territory for them they're going to be like well this is really radical i don't quite know how to to digest this so talk to me why uh, about why people are fighting for these ideals and for freedom and for potentially overthrow of the state yeah so you said like why did i go to syria to rojava and it's because um the, the leader of the PKK, who like wrote these uh, books uh, called Manifesto for a Democratic Civilization. And uh, I kind of like, I started reading things that he wrote and I was like, oh, this is incredible. And they actually had like a movement where they ended up like taking over this territory in North Syria. And uh, what Ochoan says is uh, that the, the, in, the in Neolithic society, you know, human beings, they lived in these tribes, they lived in these communities, um, you know, they were like uh, roaming around, they were doing hunting, gathering, you know, the people began to do agriculture. And just at that point, when we see the birth of the first civilizations, is when we, there were like branch, human, human civilization, there were many different branches, and there was a kind of competition 
to like kind of define like what the kind of trajectory of humanity would be. And as we know, history is always written by the, the victors. And the first civilization that kind of won out were, there, there, was, there was Babylon and then there was Ur. And, you know, if you like look at the art that they have, you know, it's all very nice things about agriculture, about fertility, you know, about nature. Uh, and then if you look at the Assyrian Empire, which was the first, which was a military dictatorship, you literally see it in their art, which is like, uh, it's all about war, it's all about like domination. And uh, the Assyrian civilization ended up defeating the other civilizations and taking power and enslaving everybody. And if you actually look up the definition of Wikipedia, on, on Wikipedia of civilization, it will literally say civilization is um, a system of centralization, of hierarchy, um, of taxation, like all the things that we associate literally st started like back there in ancient Sumeria. It's not to say that history went literally from like less from like free society to more and more domination over time. It didn't, there's been many different swings back and forwards, struggles all throughout history. Like in the, the time we're living in now, it's like a mix of these two forces that exist all throughout history, what Ochanan calls the democratic nation and state-based civilization. So the state-based civilization, so the whole point is, is to, you know, democratic, uh, democratic society or democratic nation is all of the value that's created in society is created by people, it's created by their creativity, it's created by uh, human beings, narratives, stories. The state as a construct is um, a system that extracts value um, out of human society. And you can characterize the state as having, you know, three different branches, which is, you know, the, the military, the, the, the priesthood, you know, which we can say today is like Hollywood or media or sports and the, the bureaucracy, the system of, of management. Um, and you could argue, okay, that the, st the state, you know, may, that if some, that some system of government, you know, in, in how it helped human society to be more efficient could justify its existence, but that's not what we have today. Like today what we have is, is a huge state, which is extracting more and more value out of human society, where before it used to just be like, you know, black people, brown people in Africa and Middle East, like literally two million people died in the Middle East uh, so that uh, America could continue to extract more oil to, to maintain its global hegemony. And if people in the US are going, well, it's enough, like, like maybe we should focus more on like at home, you know, like, on our, like, like what the idea, idea of America as an isolationist power like used to be. But we, we, as we've seen with Trump, we kind of tried to withdraw the deep state. It's like too powerful. It's like too encompassing. And, um, and not only that, they're like developing uh, artificial intelligences um, and, and, and automated weapons like drones that literally like fly in the sky for hours and hours on end in circles. And they like use AI. They literally just fill the sky with these drones in conflict areas. And then it means that like, you know, in the past, you, if, if something if if things were bad you could like 
speak out against power. You could say, you know, this is wrong. And even if that didn't change things, you know, you could go to the courts, you could try to uh, change things through suing people. And if that didn't work, you know, the, the final thing is, you know, you can pick up arms against the government. So even now, they're eliminating that final power that we, the people, have against uh, authoritarianism. And uh, it's, it's very scary with this, this automated weapons. Um, and I actually saw the, the US develop like a new type of missile, which uh, I only heard about it, I heard about it like a year ago, but I actually saw it, I saw like pictures of it um, actually, ha it's been used like in, in Syria against like Al Qaeda now, uh, which is a missile, which uh, it's literally samurai swords that like slice up a single target. So uh, there was like literally pictures of this guy, and he was like in little pieces, like a bit of his hand, like a bit of his arms, and, and the whole point is, is like before, if you launch a missile and make an explosion, there'd be collateral damage. But now they can actually target like individual people. We're using like AI, they can identify people by their face, they can literally eliminate a single target. As we're seeing with the economy, you might go like whatever, that's like brown people, but like, as I said, with the economy before it used to be brown people, black people, then it was Greeks and Italians, you know, now it's like actual like people in the centers of power in the UK, in the US, who are starting to realize like, oh, actually, uh, this system is like, it's impoverishing all of us. The only, they, there's, there's a huge amount of inflation. And the thing is, they say, oh, inflation, it's good, blah, blah. But the thing is, is uh, inflation is good for the rich people because the rich people have their, their money in assets and assets appreciate. Like if you have your money in Bitcoin, the Bitcoin goes up. Uh, but the thing that, about dollars is dollars does not go up. Dollars is always depreciating. And where does that money come from? It comes from normal people who have, who have money. So uh, this new like AI weapons tech that they're developing, for me, it's like it's it's not just uh, a, something that will be used far away. It's something potentially in the future where you have a total system of surveillance. They have literally weapons that can like eliminate individuals with with very with no collateral damage. And not only that, China has made this system of social credit scoring where uh, if you're a good citizen you get like a higher score for example if if you only associate with good people not bad people if you're like early to meetings not late to meetings you know if you have good behaviors if you volunteer and they use that to incentivize their citizens to behave in a certain way and um, we brought china into wef in the 90s because we said like oh china they've become like more like us but actually it didn't happen what happened to China is they just continue doing what China does. And in fact, the West now is looking at China and going, oh, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. We should copy that. <laughs> and that's why now they're talking about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, that are trying to race against crypto to implement these CBDCs. But, that, but literally what the CBDC is, is like, you know, before you have like banks, you have many banks. Now the, the number of banks has slowly got smaller over time. All that kind of all the kind of finance is aggregated in a few large players, but you'd have a your bank account would be on like one bank, and that bank would like make decisions about how to allocate credit, and there was some competition between them. Now it's like with CBDCs, it's literally just there's a web page on the central bank website, and everybody just has 
a bank account at the central bank, and they can just and everybody gets excited about UBI. They buy our UBI because oh, we're going to get free money, and then we can use that. But it's 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 a lie because the UBI it's just it's just like a you know when you get these shit coins, they give people airdrops, and people go like oh I got like free money. That's literally what they're trying to do with um, the fiat currencies to encourage people to move over to this digital apparatus where it's total control, total surveillance, and there's no room, you know, uh, that can exist. So it's like this system, this apparatus, which, um, you know, is, is, is the state-based civilization or the mega, or the mega machine, um, the, the screws are slowly getting tightened up. And that's why, um, you know, we have to literally, we have to destroy it because Crypto is the other side of this AI surveillance system. Crypto is the ability to maintain our sovereignty, to exist, to thrive, you know, and so we should be using that. Yeah, I think that it was maybe a couple of months ago that someone of the uh, central bank in England started talking about how exciting the programmability of crypto is in terms of a CBDC, because they could, exactly as you said, start incentivizing certain behavior. Maybe they will free someone's money if they're spending it on the wrong things, things that they deem you know unacceptable things. Maybe they can like guide behavior. And this complete control of this crypto system that they're creating, this government-controlled crypto system uh, is very scary and it's really the antithesis of why crypto was created. The point you brought up about war, it's so intrinsically linked to the crypto movement. You know, crypto really started out as this anti-war movement, this idea that we could stop governments raising so much money and then spending this money on atrocities like just bombing people in Syria. and uh, the way to do that is to defund them, essentially. Crypto was the vehicle for doing that. So it's it's very interesting seeing it become so popularized now and uh, all these people getting involved and perhaps not understanding the net result of what this is going to do. If we move all of the money away from a system that's controllable into one that's decentralized, how does that change society? So on that note, let's dive into this manifesto uh, that you wrote. And it's, uh, it's one of the most cypherpunk things that I have read in a long, long time. Some just awesome uh, quotes in here. So you say crypto will be split in two. RegFi will be unusable and bolted down. It will be toothless. The other side will be the underground DarkFi. It will have bite. And then you say DarkFi is not a project or a company. We are a community and a movement. Uh, you talk about how regulators are coming for us. You said, you know, we've been gifted this agorist counter-economics, what you were just talking about, this alternative reality. You said not just as a philosophy, but as a powerful agent of change. Will that power make things happen? The regulators are coming for us. They see us as children with boots too big for our feet. We need to be put back in our place. So let's dive into all of this. Let's dive into this idea of the bifurcation of the crypto world, because we are seeing this, you know, Bank of England's centrally controlled CBDCs that will incentivize certain behaviors, completely surveil everything that you're doing, control all of your assets, be able to freeze them. And then you have this movement that's been pushed further and further underground, this, you know, unregulated area of crypto, this completely decentralized area, this dark fi, as you talked about it. So, you know, walk me through this manifesto, this idea of this split. Right now, if you kind of look, especially in like kind of bull markets, um, everything becomes very like frothy. A lot of money starts to flow in. And um, a lot of this money, it comes from Silicon Valley VCs who, you know, they're, they're part of a buddy-buddy network. 
in the US, a lot of them. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're very well connected with banks and other, other kind of people. And they get the money that they get, it's, it's just cheap credit. It's just like given to them to speculate. And, you know, they pump it into crypto projects. And uh, crypto projects, you've got these devs who, you know, they've got, they've, they're maybe very talented and they're like, they're working hard on a project. And, you know, they're like, oh, we need money. So what do they do is they give a slice of their project to these VCs who, you know, they've got like loads of cheap fiat because they're part of this like old boys network. And they give it to these founders. And what do they get? They get something more valuable, which is allocation and crypto projects. So you've got these VCs who, um, who are using this, this power of, the state in order to, as, as leverage in order to get power over crypto and um, and and you've got all these uh, uh, crypto projects which you know they they're all basically rooted they've got like VCs with their tentacles in them and they all act and think in a certain way and they start influencing like all the crypto projects so they're like oh you know you can't say that you can't do that you have to present yourself in a certain way and uh, people just start to conform people just start to go along with it and then, and the consequence is is uh, like you kind of like it kind of loses its like originality it loses its, its edge you kind of have this really popular solarpunk aesthetic in ethereum if you literally just google it on google images you go to solarpunk or like i should maybe say duck duck go ahead if you duck duck right <laughs> If you look at it, it just looks like Dubai, but with like a bit of grass on top. So it's like we didn't actually change anything. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we still got like the same kind of like giant mega cities built by states, except now there's like a bit of grass on top. So that's like the political vision for that kind of side of crypto is that like, they're like, oh, you know, everything's great. We just want to make like things a bit nicer for people. And if you look at a lot of these projects, so for example, Kleros, which is a project on ETH, they did a talk at ETHCC in Paris. And the guy basically, his toolkit starts talking about the Panopticon. So the Panopticon is a concept developed in the Victorian times in England. You have this surveillance system. You have like this central tower and then all the prisons are around this town. It's like a giant eye, like from Lord of the Rings, where the prisoners they all behave because they don't know if they're being watched or not. And the consequence is, is that you need like a lot less guards. You don't need like loads of guards for each prisoners. Anyway, the guy is talking in his talk. He's saying, Foucault, who wrote about the Panopticon in the 70s, saying, oh, like, this is the system that we're living in today. He's saying, oh, Foucault got it wrong because the original idea of the Panopticon would be that anybody could go in the tower and like watch the prisoners. And therefore, it'd be a decentralized system of surveillance. The vision for like a lot of people in crypto space now is the surveillance is good because it makes everything public, but it's it's good because it's decentralized. Like there's accountability. That's like a tendency that we see that like exists inside of crypto. And a lot of these people, they might be into privacy, but there's still that kind of like trajectory in that kind of side of crypto. And you even see weird shit like the world coin, which is like a giant orb. Yeah. And the whole point is like people scan their eyeballs and everybody who, every unique uh, eyeball signature, they get like an airdrop of this world coin. It's like a giant orb. 
so basically, they're just paying people for people's like biometric data. They're like building into a database. And so like a lot of this stuff inside of crypto, they're very much into like concepts of like identity mm. um, and, and systems. A lot of them are like really into working with the regulators. Aya, who's the director of Ethereum Foundation, she like literally wrote um, a blog post on the world on the WEF website, the World Economic Forum. And even Vitalik Stad, like I was, I was talking about the WEF and ETH's affiliation with it, and he was going like, "Oh, but what's wrong with the WEF?" And like WEF and the IMF, all these like world banks. They're like really insidious organizations that literally engineer crises in developing countries. So then they can like literally do corporate takeovers. It's completely like a yeah, moral ethical organization, but there is like a deep uh, naivety in, in one sense uh, by these people who they're like, oh, you know, the government's good. They're like just trying to help us. You know, they, or maybe they do, there's like some problems with too much war, but it, it's just some small issues that can be worked out with. Like, they don't want to like eliminate the system. They just want to tweak it. And then there's like another side to those group of guys who are literally like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't give a fuck. We're just here to make money. We don't care. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd say there's like a lot of crossover between those two groups. They're there to make money, but they convince themselves they're doing something good, you know? All that cheap money that kind of flow into the crypto market and the bull market into crypto projects as well and start influencing founders in crypto projects. Those group of people start trying to influence influence crypto with its narratives. But that kind of narrative is fragile because it basically assumes cooperation from the system. And the system will only allow crypto to exist as long as crypto poses no threat. And what that means is that crypto poses no threat when it doesn't really fulfill its core value proposition. The whole, the whole reason we use crypto, we use Bitcoin, is because it allows us to do things. It unlock things that were previously inaccessible to us before. You know, that, that's, that's why crypto is incredible. But we haven't unlocked the full potential power of crypto. And so as soon as crypto starts to step on the toes, of those regulators and they push back, then the other side of crypto, which is our side, you know, we point to that, we say, look, this is how they respond to our legitimate demand for our self-sovereignty. And so the more that like crypto fulfill its core value proposition, the more that the mask of the emperor kind of come off. The idea of DarkFi is the kind of initiate that kind of direction forward because the whole space is kind of lost right now. Uh, I was literally on a call with a guy from the SEC. It was a call about crypto law. There was a guy from the SEC. There was a bunch of lawyers there. I was there. Uh, I was was talking about, you know, crypto's potential, how it can like undermine the system. And the guy from the SEC, he literally said like, you know, crypto have two choices. He started talking about these auctions, antiques, and collectibles. And he said, if crypto wants to be like that, you know, then there's a place for it in our world. But if crypto is going to be this other thing, 
you know, then it can't coexist. So that's, that's essentially the message that they're giving to us. I mean, how do they plan to enforce that? I mean, that's the big question that I have. To take a step back, you're talking about VCs entering crypto. I see that there's tremendous value in people pouring resources into it. You talked about like your yeah. entrance into the space. Resources were super constrained. The fact that we have all this money piling, we can fund developers that will build our decentralized future is awesome. But I definitely see what you're saying about this changing narrative, about this kind of shift in the culture uh, that comes along with all of these vested interests uh, piling in. In terms of the VCs, there are like crypto native VCs, which are which are kind of core, like, and, and they understand, they get it, they get what crypto is about. But then you have VCs from the old world, part of that old system, uh, and the kind of strategy, the the kind of system tries to use to kind of co-opt movements is like you know the Microsoft thing, embrace, extend, extinguish. So it's like, you know, they, they embrace some part of crypto because, for example, if they're trying to go like, oh, you know, like anonymity is bad, you know, or, or maybe they won't say like anonymity is bad, but they go like, oh, you need to KYC the, the nodes, so the, the mining, mm-hmm. the staking, you know. So then there'll be some anonymity projects who like go along with that and they're like, okay, you know, they're okay. But then there's the other ones who are like no, and so then they kind of like single them out, you know. So they always, so they always do this thing. They try to create this kind of, you know, like the way uh, the tactic of divide and conquer. Mm. That, that's kind of what they're trying to do with with crypto is they're trying to like isolate small parts. These people think that they still have control and that they can enforce certain things. And I think what instead we're seeing is that the tables have been turned. The tables of power have been turned. The genie is out of the bottle. And we now have technology that gives people back their individual sovereignty, as you said. We now have tools that give people back freedom. And there's no way to you know, put that technology back in the bottle that's out there. And people can use it if they want. There is zero knowledge proofs, as you said, you're diving into that give people total privacy that, you know, We've got 3D printers, we've got decentralized money supply, we've got DEXs that take out the middleman with exchanging coins. Like, there's so much exciting stuff that I don't think regulators even realize how much the tables have turned. They're still talking about this narrative of what we will and will not allow, and they don't realize that we have technology now that can't be stopped. And uh, and there is no, you know, I mean, they can say whatever bans they want, but how do you enforce those things? Individuals can write code, individuals can use code. How are you going to enforce a system where people no longer have access to this freedom enabling tools? So dive into this DarkFi project that you're working on, dive into zero knowledge proofs, all the research you've been doing there and this incredible power that people now have that you guys are trying to harness. All throughout history, there were new technologies that were made and always uh, a new technology whose time has come it can't be stopped. Mm-hmm. So um, there, were, there were people who kind of wanted to put the genie back in the bottle, but it was kind of too late, as you, as you said. Uh, but they had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the future. We just have to kind of push the crypto and we have to say, like, no, this is like, we're in like a race to this endpoint. And they're trying to like slow us down. They're trying to like buy time to like formulate a strategy. Situation now, is very different to 10 years ago when Bitcoin first came about. The cryptography is, is on a new level. Uh, all of the best cryptographers in the world all work in cryptocurrency. There's, there's no cryptographer that doesn't work in cryptocurrency now. 
knowing that a lot of these guys all throughout the 90s, you know, and, you know, 2000s, they were just like people in a university, they didn't have much money. Now the, the, the cryptography departments in universities, they're like flooding with money. There's like loads of money going in. They, like, you know, they have, like everybody has resources to do their research. And the level of development in, for example, blockchain algorithms has evolved massively in 10 years. The level of development of um, all different uh, cryptography primitives has evolved a lot, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff we can do. For example, one of the projects I did in 2014 was something called Dark Leaks, which was an information market where you could basically put a, a document on the internet and prove that the veracity of the document is what you were claiming it is. And then there would be an auction for that. Um, but the system was kind of primitive and awkward, but now with the cryptography, you can make something that's amazing. You can have very functional smart contracts that are completely anonymous. And a very big part of that toolkit is the zero knowledge proofs, which the zero knowledge proofs is like before, if I wanted to create some cryptography program, I wanted to do some crypto program, I had to look and I had to say, Oh, you know, I have to put this thing here. I had to know a lot about maths. And I had to try, I'll try and piece together these things and it would be very kind of awkward. And then like maybe, you know, it, it would be like slow or, you know, maybe it would be like very difficult to make or something with zero knowledge proofs. We now have a generic uh, toolkit where a programmer doesn't have to know advanced cryptography or math. They can just write code like a normal programmer uh, very basic, very easy code to write, and they can create a hu huge number of different anonymous applications. You can create markets, you can create anonymous money, you can create voting systems for DAOs, for governance, you can have peer-to-peer -peer markets, loads of stuff, everything, any, anything you can imagine. And what this does is, it, 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 there's a door, there's like a new door, and it opens the door to an entirely new design space, which before was not possible. And when we combine them with all the other stuff, like us with new blockchain algorithms, other cryptography primitives, it's like this is like this is a new paradigm of computing, which no, nobody's touched yet. We're still in a very early stage. We're developing a generic layer one for anonymous smart contracts. And we're going to build applications on that layer one. And we have zero competitors. Like we have no competitor uh, against us. There are projects working with zero knowledge and developing layer ones or layer twos. However, they've got heavy VC funding, heavy interests. They're steering the direction of the software that they develop. They're always going to be limited in what they can deliver to their audience. And anybody who's interested in this topic should read the synopsis uh, by the Open Bazaar guys about why Open Bazaar failed. Uh, you know, I, I made Dark Market and it was a tool of freedom. The Bitcoin community at the time was very different to now. At the time, um, there was all this Bitcoin foundation stuff. People would come up to me and go, Amir, you're a developer, but I'm an expert in marketing, and you're not marketing Bitcoin properly, blah, blah. You know, so everybody in Bitcoin was always like really into 
uh, big banks and regulation, and we were like the minority voice, the like crypto anarchists. It wasn't like that in 2010 or 2011, but something changed in 2012, 2013, and, and 20, so that's why with Dark Wallet, we were like drawing a line in the sand against all these new people that were coming in and trying to tell like the old people like how the show should be run. They were like, and it's the same thing, like, you know, we were talking about earlier where he said like, oh, you know, these crazy anarchists, they make this like really cool play thing, uh, but if we can just get it out of their hands, we can like get mass adoption, you know, that's always the way we get mass adoption. So we get the normies on board, you know, and what do normies want? They want it to be like, regulated and official, you know, like from some big corporation. Does it matter that the narrative is different if the underlying tool still gives people the same financial freedom? Like how does that narrative perhaps compromise? Yeah, it massively matters. So yeah, what happened with, uh, dark, with dark Market is um, there was a petition on, on Reddit to rename it from Dark Market because the name is scary. And they wanted to like name it to something better. So that's where the Open Bazaar guys like took over and they, they emailed me and go, oh, can you change the license? And then they took all this funding from A16Z, which is like a big VC firm in America run by like all these like, you know, Silicon Valley guys. And they, uh, and then they started, and then they were like, oh, you have to like make sure that like there aren't criminals on your network. And so they started implementing all this censorship tech, like, sens- like filters and stuff. And uh, to answer your question, yes, it matters massively because this is the problem with Bitcoin is that everybody was like, oh, Bitcoin's finished, it's perfect, like we don't have to do anything. But it's like, no, the software always evolves. There's always like interests that shape like the features you put in it, um, the ecosystem around it. And the things that you're saying is going to attract different kinds of people. So if you're saying like, you know, uh, oh, I, yeah, we have to, fight to protect the system, blah, blah. You're going to attract, you're going to, you're going to push away people who they think differently. We're building a social structure here. We have to realize that, you know, the developers, uh, the community shape the software. So like, what kind of community are we trying to create? What are the values of the narrative that we're trying to create? And um, that's why I was talking about the Ethereum thing where it's like, you know, they're like, they're inadvertently building censorship tech because of the story that they tell, you know, and they end up like serving the agenda of power. Like we talked about social credit scoring, like it's it's like not inconceivable that like blockchains become like a news. I mean, imagine if you have like your credit score, your like your social credit score on a public blockchain, and there was like no way that you could change it. You know, it's like nothing, just like an algorithm that runs. You know, now like determines your future. Be like a prison. It's like, could also become like an authoritarian sort of like power and control, you know? That is one aspect of crypto that, you know, we're contending with. But um, the, other crypt- the other side of crypto is very liberatory. We tell stories to each other, and I said the, Z- the zero knowledge and the cryptography is a door that's been opened. It's like, we've gone into that, we're going into that door now, and there's entire like space that we can explore. And the thing is, like, all throughout history, there were these big like uh, shifts in paradigm. And, it, and, and, it, and it, the idea of science is like, as, as going in these like little steps, each step of the way, it's, it's false. Like science does not like go in by little baby steps. It just, you have these periods of time where there's like a consensus, where everybody's like operating under this like model, this like worldview that they believe in. But then these like paradoxes start to emerge or start, you start people start to like 
bump up against the limit of the current dominant paradigm. And there's always like an opposition voice, like small opposition voices. And it's like when these like paradoxes, you know, start to reveal themselves, that every, there's suddenly there's like this big conflict. And then there's like a shift over to like a new paradigm and a new consensus develops. And that's kind of like how all kind of social political movements are similar. You know, like the American revolutionaries, the Irish revolutionaries, like all, all, all of them throughout history start off as a marginal oppositional voice. But it's, 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 it's like, take a few small paradoxes at the beginning and create this feedback loop where they go, look, we told you this is what's happening. And it, and it suddenly starts to spiral out of control. The mask comes off and everybody starts to go, wow, like this is the reality. And it's kind of like what we're living in now. The Soviet Union in the 90s, uh, just, before it, no, just before it broke down, like people were like, they could see that the economy was failing. This is all falling apart. We can see it in front of our eyes. And they, they were like watching television where television was going like, no, everything's perfect. You know, blah, blah. We just invented this new thing. Oh, there's, everything's going great. People were like, that's clearly lies, but they couldn't imagine any other way of existing. So they just literally just kept going to their jobs. They kept doing the same things. It's kind of like a similar situation now where it's like people are seeing that it's like breaking down slowly. They're seeing like the limits of like reality. I was talking about science and science have these little paradoxes in the beginning. It was like the first step like shattering the, the, the mirage, the illusion is created. But that doesn't happen by chance. It happens because there are certain shifts in like mind frames. And it doesn't, that maybe doesn't happen from within science itself. It happens because there's a shift in the, in the, in the philosophy or the ideology in, in the society at large. And the scientist starts looking at things from a different angle. And he starts seeing, you see he has like an intent. And he tries to do something, he starts bumping up against the limits of the old paradigm that was put in front of him. And it's a similar thing with now with the technology. The technology that we're using, the computers that we're using were invented in the 80s. Like nothing has changed since the 80s. And the, the people who invented that in the 80s, who invented Unix, they tried to do um, this idea of, of like a, a technology that was interconnected, you know, where people could like uh, collaborate and stuff. But they were limited by the computer resources available at the time, by the concepts, by the technology that they had. But since then, it's like computers have not changed. We're still like, we still like access websites on a server. You know, like when I, it's like, it's very, the software does not interoperate across networks. So it's like, we're like ripe for an, a, a, a complete change in the computer paradigm, you know? The guy, who invented the term artificial intelligence in the 50s called John McCarthy. He was a communist and at the time computers were giant machines owned by military and industry. And he said, what if everybody had access to a machine? What if using a computer was as simple as like plugging something into the wall, like an electric utility? What if everybody could have access to computers? And that's why he came up with the concept of a computer that could divide its time between multiple people and that they can connect with each other. And that led to the development of the internet and it led to the development of the modern computer. So, you know, that started with people who had an idea of like how things could be different and that pushed them to like explore these like new avenues and sort of to put things together. 
That's not going to happen with a bunch of people in Silicon Valley who they're just following the trend. They're just going on to the next cool thing. The VCs now, they're all talking about Web3. It's like the new buzzword that they heard. They just latch on to the next thing that comes along. They're not generating new ideas. That kind of group of people can't create new things. Whereas the original, whereas the original people who created uh, cryptocurrencies, created the, the crypto anarchists in the 90s, the, the crypto people, uh, Satoshi, uh, the crypto people in 2010, 2011, the agorists, the um, sound money people, the Austrian economics people, the free software hackers, those are the people that are going to drive the technology space forward. Not like some big corporations who they're indoctrinated. They don't. They don't have like any any ideas. They don't. They can't. They can't see how to do things different. So those are the people that I'm interested in. People that have ambition, have direction. You know. So it's like we're like telling that narrative, that story. Like let's, you know, like let's chip in. Let's realize this thing. You know, and that's mm. that's the original idea of what crypto is meant to be about. That's why the all started came into it as well. We all came here. Although it's good to remember, you said yourself, you know, there are different types of VCs. Yes, there are some real bad eggs out there, but there are some people who do get it and they are pouring a bunch of money into making sure that we realize this this future. And a bunch of people who made a ton of money in crypto itself because they were early adopters who are then putting that money back in and investing in making sure that this innovation continues. Institutional VCs. That's, that's right, exactly. Yeah, let we'll use that one. Um, but so you said DarkFi is kind of this base layer for anonymous applications and smart contracts. It's going to be multi-chain interoperable. Um, yeah. So talk to me about this vision and what you foresee in building DarkFi and why you decided to to focus on this. So talk to me about the, the details of what this will look like. A lot of people, like when they talk about crypto, they just focus on the tech part of it but there's also a very big financial part of crypto. Mm -hmm. And crypto is kind of this intersection between economics and technology and Mm -hmm. also philosophy, uh, which are the three kind of primary movers of politics and history and so on. So I became very interested in these economic networks and also the ideas of the agorists where you can actually use economic power as, as a way of changing things. And the ideas of the crypto anarchists, which said that we want to use cryptography to create these spaces in the internet where opposition groups, where marginalized voices, where they can assemble, where they can organize. I also started to become very heavily interested in, in DeFi and all the kind of like innovation that's happening around there. Also just seeing as well the amount of liquidity that was being aggregated by DeFi protocols and realizing we can use these techniques, we can use this knowledge, we can aggregate liquidity inside of our own anonymous networks, and we can we can create a paradigm which is completely outside of the frame, you know, which is fully embodies what crypto is. So that's how we start conceptualizing DarkFi. I've been doing research for several years on anonymity techniques since beginning 2012. You know, that was my always my main focus was anonymity. And I, I think there's a lot of important relevance with cryptocurrency. Um, I think it's a major important technological innovation. Mm-hmm. It's something that we, we can use. So that's why we started conceptualizing DarkFi. When can people see this start to come to fruition? 
Well, we have a prototype working, which is on GitHub, that people can run, and they can already deposit from Bitcoin, from Solana. They can make payments to each other. Those are our first contracts that we've written. The next one we're writing now is going to be a DAO, so that we can have a treasury on chain, and we can manage the treasury through community. Test that will be quite soon, but the main net will be like far off. It takes a lot of work. Our thesis is that there's going to be a major regulatory impact at some point. Like maybe they're just waiting for the right moment to kind of strike. That could be like a major extinction event, which、mm-hmm. kind of sent、uh, crypto into a winter scenario.、Uh, but actually, it's very bullish for DeFi. You know? Right. The bear market is actually good for us, like compared to most projects. It kills like a lot of projects. But the interesting thing about bear markets is that the space starts to become starts to consolidate, but it also become more ideological. People have been saying, "Oh, we're going to have this、uh, super cycle," but I think the super cycle is structurally bearish for crypto. It basically assumes co-option and mass adoption. Uh, which means the crypto would not realize it's like full potential, but I, I don't think we're like really ready for that. If you like look at the state of the products on the market, they're very kind of premature, and also there is not really that much like organic adoption by like mainstream. I don't think this is like the launchpad kind of scenario. I do think we're going to go kind of more into kind of the consolidation phase.、Mm-hmm. So in terms of dark fight, we're very much like. Positioning ourselves with that kind of conservative growth strategy of like preservation,、uh, but we are hiring a lot of devs. We're ex- we're expanding in that sense and bunkering down, right? Code developing, but we're also developing our narrative as well. Even Ethereum itself is suffering from that now. We're starting to see a lot of fragmentation in the Ethereum community. All these like L2s and all these like competitors, like Near. Like Polkadot, Avalanche, they all kind of spawn from within ETH itself. So it's a kind of sign that ETH doesn't really have like a coherent narrative. The actual Ethereum Foundation itself has like lost influence over the wider DeFi space. What we're seeing emerge in the DeFi space is、um, a very figurative、uh, form of politics. You know, there's this article by Other Internet called Squad Wealth, which is talking about This new conception of wealth, which is post-corporate, there's a corporate hierarchy, which is the classic way that things are done. But what we're seeing emerging crypto is this new wealth system, where people form mobile organizations which don't have any kind of solid form. So what we see is there's a very nascent, free, democratic seed that's trying to escape from within the DAO and DeFi space. Um, with like strong cypherpunk tendencies, so we're trying to kind of like pull those threads out. This idea of regfi versus darkfi, we kind of see the crypto space splitting into two, which would be accentuated by this regulatory impact event or kind of extinction event. You know, it happened the same with poker, online poker, where if you try to make an account on any poker site now these days. There's one for Spain. There's one for France. They're, they're segregated. They're not allowed to be international. So when you go on, the experience is very bad because the player pools are small. But also the amount of documentation you need to send is impossible. It's very awkward and difficult. 
So a lot of these like crypto DeFi protocols will become very kind of KYC'd and very limited because I was talking about the, the cash flows, the inflows into crypto out of the fiat world. Like at some point, the states around the world are going to say, like, this is a legitimate concern that we have. Because if you, for example, look at Tether, they're not backed by, like, cash. They're backed by, like, weird things like debt instruments and stuff. They've literally just been printing dollars with impunity and there's nothing the U.S. can do about it. That's why they're talking about stable coins. Like, it's like a very big threat to this, the stability of the U.S. dollar. DeFi existed inside in that context of, of what's happening. I said a lot of people now into Web3. It was my like, oh, the next web, but the, the web sucks. It's a crappy technology. It was like, it was never great to begin with, but it's become worse over the years. So I don't say it's like a model to copy, but not only that, it's like a, it's a surveillance paradigm. But I, I think we can do something that's more interesting. That's why I think the, the dark fly paradigm or narrative is like way more politically interesting. There's way more going on in terms of applications that we can deliver. We talked about Open Bazaar, we talked about Dark Leagues. You can also make local Bitcoins anonymous, you know, anonymous DEXs, swaps, DAOs. Like, imagine a completely anonymous DAO with a treasury. It's a new form of public goods, you know, where the people direct the capital. Nobody can know who's doing what, you know, it's, I think that's amazing. Yeah, I think that and Snowden's talked a lot about this before, about the early days of the internet, where you had this new technology, people trying to figure out what it was going to be used for. Some people completely discounted it, like Paul Krugman, who's like, this it's going to have no greater effect than the fax machine had. Um, and so then what it enabled was the connection of human capital. It was this networking tool that allowed individuals to connect with each other in ways that we hadn't ever before and so the promise of the early internet was incredible it had such potential because when you have humans collaborating and joining and and sharing ideas and building there's so much potential inherent in that and then he talks about how this was co-opted and sort of created you know what you're talking about this this surveillance apparatus this completely monitored tool this controlled tool this uh tool that's censored and it merged into something different and so it seems like you know dark is kind of getting back to this early idea of just individuals being able to of their own volition enter into contracts with other people enter into agreements connect with others in a way that perhaps isn't um subject to censorship isn't subject to surveillance in the same way that the internet is so it's kind of like almost fulfilling the promise of what the early internet might have been yeah you know tim berners lee he said when he made the web he imagined it more like wikipedia where everybody would like edit the web pages he didn't imagine it like now where everybody goes on youtube you know there's like four sites four websites that everybody just goes on all the time and he didn't imagine it as these like giant platforms imagine it more like decentralized everybody would be like editing other things or sharing info so um you get back to what i was talking about about the the paradigm of computing you know, which which hasn't like really changed like too much. Uh, but we can create something that's new. The whole point of the technology is like, you know, like we had this thing in the post two thousands with BitTorrent, where yeah, it started out with people going, oh, I want to I want to download music for free, 
But it wasn't just about like not paying. It was like something bigger than that. Free access to information. It literally became the course. People like started making political bias about it. People were willing to go to jail to fight Hollywood. Be like, no, it's like my right to information, to freedom. And then we got like literally like revolutions. People overthrowing the government in Egypt, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Kyrgyzstan. It actually caused people to like actually move and like do things in the real world. And uh, that's like one vision of technology, which is a vision of technology which empower people to do things, to change things, you know, give people their sovereignty and their freedom. There's another vision of technology, which is the vision of the mega machine apparatus of the state-based civilization, which is literally all this stuff about surveillance, about accumulation of power, about centralization. That's like the logic of the system. Uh, so that, that's why having this tooling, which we create and we gift to programmers, we're like, here is, here is your tooling, the unique tooling to create freedom, to manifest it. Literally, let's call it into existence. Let's, all of us smart people, start directing our mental energy and let's conceptualize this thing, let's bring it into existence, you know. That's happened many times before in the history of technology, in computing as well. A lot of the people that invented the internet, they were visionaries. If you look at the videos of Donald Mickey or John McCarthy, they were like, oh, we're going to create uh, human freedom through this uh, power of computer. You know, Ada Lovelace, she was the first programmer. She wrote in the 1850s, literally 150 years before it would happen. She wrote that this concept of the computer should be in everybody's home, that people would make music and art and stuff on the computers. Everybody else, they didn't understand what the computer was capable of. They were like, oh, it's just like a machine to do calculations for industry. But she thought I could do much more. And also I talked about John McCarthy, who basically invented the internet and the modern computer, the time-sharing operating system. He as well was driven by a, a vision of what computers could be. So computers were giant machines used by military, used by industry, that they gave the military and industry tremendous amounts of power to be able to process information. And he was like, people need access to this power. The people need access to this computing power. So he tried to think, how could I get this power into the hands of people? And he made it happen, he made it happen. The same thing with crypto, like we can make it happen. You know, we can create something which give people their power. And it's gonna happen. The idea is out there. We just need to start talking about it. Not only we're talking about, we're making it, we're developing the tools. I mean, if people go onto our GitHub, if they go into our, our chat, you know, if they go to our Telegram, we have a Telegram group, we post the news. You can see that we're like, we're putting our ideas into action. For sure. I mean, I, I just want to read something from your DarkFi manifesto. Um, you said, this is a great power that must be used respectfully. Remember, every technological revolution in history had naysayers who wanted to put the genie back in Pandora's box, but they were dragged kicking and screaming into the future against their will. There are no judgments or edicts being made here, just statements of reality. Take it or leave it. This is what will happen. Welcome to the agorist future. Let there be dark. It's just such a, a powerful way to end that. It kind of sums up nicely all that vision for technological innovation and creation and harnessing human uh, human ingenuity that you've been talking about. A lot of the early Bitcoin people, they were agorists. 2010, 2011 on the 
Bitcoin talk forums. Every day there was people posting, we have to destroy the Fed, about agorism, like nonstop. We want to bring that energy back to crypto. Agorism as an idea was so central to crypto in, in its founding, but it's kind of dropped off the wayside, being kind of forgotten about, but we want to bring it back and we want to infuse it with new ideas. That's why we're also publishing a journal and we've invited key thinkers, like philosophers of technology, like Nick Lands, Gaia, Ray Brazier, really smart guys to contribute to this journal that we're publishing, which we're going we're gonna to send out to put our voice within that kind of community of people. I mean, I've been speaking about this for a long time. When your manifesto came out, I was like, yes, that's he just articulated the thing I've been trying to articulate for like a year where you're seeing this clampdown and regulation. And it's like, well, what's the end game? Because the technology itself can't be controlled. So the end game is that you end up with two iterations of what this technology can become. Half of it is becoming increasingly regulated. There's all of this surveillance. There's all of this control. There's a lack of innovation and flourishing because there's no freedom to allow that flourishing. And so that innovation is being driven to the dark uh, side of things, dark vice, being driven underground in an area that's decentralized, can't be controlled. And that's the future that we need to be investing all of our energy in. Yeah, you know, Ross Ulbricht, he listed his NFTs which are pretty cool prison drawings. And so there was a bidding auction for the NFTs. Somebody set up a free Ross DAO, which was a way to pull capital in this DAO, which would then bid on the NFT. And then afterwards, the goal would be to fractionalize the NFT so everybody had partial ownership. The DAO ended up raising 14 million and ended up winning the auction. That money has gone to his family now for like... Mm -hmm for Russell Britt, who's in prison for life, who previously did not have enough money to pay for his lawyers. I've been working with Assange's brother as well, who's mm -hmm. been trying to launch an NFT for a while now. A lot of people have, have just like spontaneously got together. Now a lot of really smart, respected people in, in crypto industry are like helping out with the free Assange style. Everybody's really like really enthusiastic community, really involved. We have the capital in our networks ourselves, and we can pull that capital. Cypherpunks are raising capital and then using that capital to free other cypherpunks. Like Assange was an original cypherpunk. Russell Briggs, he was a cypherpunk. And now we're like, we're like literally through these decentralized protocols and decentralized tools, we're able to raise huge amounts of money. And then the community who's in charge of that capital is able to direct it to like make things happen in the real world. And, it's like, and as I said, this is only beginning. And that's all done on ETH, where everybody's identity is public. We bid on the free Ross NFT. We put money into the DAO and our, our investment 10x. So it's like, it actually has value. They're like historic artifacts. Russell Briggs drawings. They're pretty cool drawings from like everyday life in prison like historic people is able to like form these groups these like syndicates or squads and they're able to act together in a collective way to accomplish something big and it's and it's a testament to the kind of power free rostal was able to raise 14 million maybe the free assange style raises like a lot more but that's done on eth imagine if we have anonymous protocols and we have anonymous styles people was able to pull capital anonymously 
and you've got a community of anonymous fighters able to direct that capital towards things, able to coordinate together. You know, we've only just really seen the beginning. Like none of this has been like materialized yet, where you know we've got these like anonymous economic blocks in the internet, like coordinating through you know uh, all these different like protocols, like wealth mechanisms, economics. I was talking about being a free software development uh, developer in the past. And like being broke, and like Bitcoin kind of has that problem now. Privately, I've spoken with devs now who are like slowly stepping down or winding down their involvement in Bitcoin because like literally no money to pay them. My friend Eric Voskill, he made a Bitcoin node that sinks in 15 minutes, like a full node, but and but he can't get like investment, which in the rest of crypto is like really easy to raise. So we have this like tokenization mechanism now, which allows to like capture value and like feed that value back into networks it's a very powerful tool because when you tokenize something for example if i pay you for something that's like a transactional relationship but if you have like a share of something and you own that share you have ownership over that protocol over that thing now we're like creating these uh, digital infrastructures like everything's digital today but like now we're creating these digital infrastructures and it's not just it's not like there's there's uh, a producer and a consumer that are separate it's like no they're one and the same the community is the owner of this technology the community the idea of a good token distribution is one where it's widely distributed throughout the community not in a few big whales who like own like the majority of sadly there's a lot of bad distribution and so the community is the owners of these technological infrastructures and, you know, it, it confers on them governance rights, so they have the ability to make major decisions or to, like, steer the direction of, of the protocol. So the protocol is not owned by anybody. It's owned by the people, essentially. And then also you can use that to create incentives or disincentives to have a network that has interesting characteristics that operate in certain ways. So, for example, my, my friend Harry, he made NIM projects which name is like an anonymity layer because we know that Tor is broken. And Harry, he, he was developing MixNets in the university for like a decade. They didn't have an economic model, so they weren't able to get funding. Then Harry was like, wait, we'll just put, we'll put a token on it. But the interesting thing about the LIN token is essentially you're using it to pay for provisioning of a service in a network. What they were able to do then is they're then able to take that and to then to get money that they use to develop the technology. But already the size of NIM is like bigger than the Tor network. It's already much bigger. Mm -hmm. So that's like an example of like the success of this new like funding or like economic mechanism, financial engineering tools or like token engineering that we can use to construct these technological paradigms. And so it's our duty and our job to like delve into these things, to go deep into them, to understand them, because they're all part of our arsenal, they're all part of our toolkit that we can, that we can leverage and we can utilize. I talked about DAOs, like how DAOs can be used to coordinate people together. And the interesting thing about DAOs as well is like crypto typically has, um, there's, there's just been like uh, not very much representation of women. But there's like a lot of women engaged in DAOs. If you go into them, you know, you can see like a lot of like engagement. So 
a year or so ago, or like more than that, they didn't have much traction. But now all of a sudden they've like started to get really big. So there's a lot of thinking in this space, not only around economics, but around uh, uh, political talks, like how can we together, how can we together coordinate? I was also just like two weeks ago in Lebanon, their economy's collapsed essentially. When you change 200 euros, you get a stack of Lebanese pound that big, and you have to like put it in a bag, in like a backpack. <laughs> when you're in a restaurant, you're counting, it's like <laughs> some ridiculous number. Oh, but um, all, yeah, all the exchange shops, they're all dealing in USD tether. Mm-hmm. So we were like, oh, Bitcoin's going to be the currency of mass adoption, but maybe it's USD tether because everybody in the developing world is using tether to do trade with each other. You have all these networks that already exist throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, where people are like literally moving like billions of dollars throughout Asia as well. Um, the level of sophistication that the crypto space has reached is way different to 2013. And there's all these flows of capital all through these networks, you know. Um, so what that's happening now is creating a new clock, a new group of people in the crypto space and these people like they have access to like wealth and they're ideological as well they're like they have they come from crypto that's what's about like crypto native people you know this money is like it's going around these networks and you know as you said like the system it's like going to come after it at some point it's going to want its tax it's going to be like i want a piece of that all the kind of crypto companies they're moving out of the mainland, they're moving to offshores. FTX just left from Hong Kong, they've gone to Bahamas. Now Binance has just gone to Dubai. So already they're pushing us out bit by bit and we're like, we're like becoming more marginalized. Dark fight, like we're in basically Switzerland. There's a little bit like sustained forever. At some point, like US is gonna come after Switzerland. And Switzerland already caved once before, you know, yeah. Dubai. Dubai just cares about money, you know, like they literally, they literally don't give a fuck about crypto, they just care about money. So we're going to have to come up with other solutions, you know, and part of what makes crypto crypto is our ingenuity. It's like the whole point of it is the technological ingenuity. So that's why I, I think these networks, which are self-sovereign, which protect their participants, is going to become like a central key question of crypto in the coming future. It's simply too much of an entrenched economic interest. You know, a lot of people in crypto now, they've become uh, very like, well off from crypto mm-hmm. and they're not going to give that up easily. Not, there's no going back. Like, people are like, oh, you know, we're here to stay. We, like, we want to keep building. We've got a different conception of the world you know, and, uh, and we're using this technology to create this new uh, uh, political paradigm, this new economic paradigm. Um, you know, we have the AMMs, the markets, um, the DEXs, that's, that's all real, you know, like if you go onto any exchange now, it's like it all wants you to KYC uh, to be able to use it. But I can literally go on to Uniswap or Sushi or whatever. I can like I can trade. If I've got my reserve in USDT and there's a guy and he wants something else, he wants Bitcoin, you know, I can go in through Solana where it's like basically for free and I can trade it. And, and people go like, oh, Solana is like centralized. But... It's a no KYC network that I can tap into and I can use it to like move money from A to B. Crypto is like, has changed fundamentally because uh, 2011, 
it, there was just Bitcoin. And then, you know, it started to pop up like, you know, all these like shit coins and old coins. And then, you know, Monero came about and, you know, there was Zcash and then Ethereum as well. Then Ethereum, suddenly there was all these apps and stuff. But now what we're seeing, what happened this year that was so different is like all the new L1s that popped up. So it's like, oh, actually, there is no, there's no barrier. It's just like people creating infrastructure. And actually the money goes in and out of these networks, different networks. No, there's no wall that's like stopping. Like you, you can go on Solana and you can deposit Bitcoin, you can deposit any ERC20, like loads of different currencies. You can access all the like markets in there. You can cash out onto ETH. You can do the same thing there. You know, people like wrapping Bitcoin, like moving it into some protocol on ETH where you can stake it and get like another token back. Mm -hmm. You can put that, you can do like just weird stuff going on. There's like all flows that are going everywhere. There was like a major change in the mindset of crypto. Oh no, it's not just like there's an ETH and there's a Bitcoin and there's a Monero. No, it's like, Actually, these are all interconnected. People building bridges. Blockchain, you can like literally swap Bitcoin for ETH on both of the networks. And anybody who interacts with that just immediately sees how workable that is, like how usable that experience is. Well, maybe not usable, maybe not always usable, you know, but, you know, it's like very practical. Applications are still not being fully realized. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe there's a bit of fear there. Or maybe it's like the, the tooling hasn't been made yet. I talked about the, the zero knowledge proofs with DarkFi. We don't need any, anybody else to come with us. We're creating the tools that we need to build the applications that we want to have. But obviously it'd be better with a community of people, you know, uh, alongside us sharing the gains or the wealth as well. And also uh, uh, other groups of developers chipping in. So it's not just one group, but it's a diversified ecosystem. You know, it makes it harder for us to be stopped. With crypto, there's gonna come some like events at some point. They're gonna put this as the central question. You know, we will be ready, we'll be well prepared to like make use of that, to like show to people like, here is everything that we need to like go, you know? Here is the, the, the narrative, the, that explains things that we, we've been talking about for a long time, the ideas, the concepts, you know. We're even developing the aesthetic. Well, I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with and to watch all the progress. This has been super interesting. I mean, I really appreciate your time diving into all this, diving into what makes you tick, diving into the philosophy of privacy and why it's important and uh, why we need to fight back. And we're kind of at this pivotal moment where it's time to galvanize people and choose which path we're going to take. So regfi or darkfi? You have two pills. You can take the red pill or the blue pill. Thank you so much for, for joining me and for chatting about all this. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot.